This talk was recorded at the 2019 Actuarial Society of South Africa Convention at the Sandton Convention Centre. For more information on the Actuarial Society, visit actuarialsociety.org.za. Welcome everyone. This, this session will be on um, enhancing the probability of delivering alpha, which is obviously an investments topic, so just make sure you're in the right session um, before we kick it off. Um, it'll be presented by uh, Becky Kuswayo and Tabojo Totsetsi. Um, in, my, in my dealings with them over the years, in various guises at various companies, I've, I found them both to um, have a, a healthy appetite for researching robust ways of improving investment and risk processes. Um, I, I read through the paper, as, as I hope all of you have done as well, and I think there are one or two very interesting ideas in there. Um, so I look forward to hearing uh, how they expand on that today. Um, they will both be presenting. I think Becky is up first. So with that, Becky, over to you. Thanks, Andrew. <coughs> Ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much for sticking around and spending some time with us this afternoon. Now, some of you would have seen the article that was on Money, on Money Web last week written by Patrick Cairns, in which uh, the, the headline was three in four active managers underperform. Now, those type of statistics do not bode well for the active management industry. <laughs> so, as Edward said, my name is Peggy Kuzwayo, and over there is my colleague, Dibokho Tsotetsi. We are co-founders of an active manager called Limambeu Investment Managers. So, <clears throat> active managers face numerous challenges. Of particular concern is how can they outperform their benchmarks. Now, we started Limambeu in 2017 because of our belief that if you, if you can integrate robust risk management processes into the traditional uh, processes, investment processes, you can seriously improve your chances of actually delivering alpha for the client. Now, in the industry, typically, Risk management is thought of as more like the policing arm of an active manager. And our view is quite different to that. In fact, as I've said, our view is actually that by having a robust risk management process, you can actually be able to enhance the alpha and actually improve the chances of delivering alpha. And in our interactions that we've had with uh, multi-managers and investment consultants and other allocators, you know, this type of thinking that we've brought about, we've seen a, a, a huge interest and, you know, um, the, the feedback has been very positive. And that's what motivated us to actually come and discuss some of these ideas with you here today. So in terms of what we will talk about, we're basically going to touch on three uh, topics. Firstly, we're going to talk about the difficulties that active managers face in trying to outperform benchmarks. And then we will look at the factors that affect the underperformance, as well as the techniques. We will then introduce some techniques that we believe that if managers can embrace, they can enhance their alpha. Now, I said I'm an active manager. The one other thing about me is I'm a huge soccer fan, and this here is my team of choice. This is Liverpool, by the way. <laughs> um, and so when I look at this picture, this, this was taken after they had won the UEFA Champions League earlier this year. And I think most of us in the audience can actually, you know, relate to this type of picture. 
and it, it is across different sports, right, where you see a team having won a championship and you see them celebrating wildly. But what can easily be missed on this picture is what it actually took for them to be able to achieve this success. And I can promise you they had to overcome many difficulties and many obstacles, right, on the way to achieving this success. And they had to show determination, uh, persistence, and consistency. Now, when I think of that, to me, it's very similar to what an active manager is trying to do. And effectively, the active manager is trying to bring home the championship called Alpha for the client. Now, there's many difficulties that active managers face. And unfortunately, for many managers, this has resulted in underperformance. And this is not an, a new issue, right? This problem was uh, in 1940, Fred Schwed Jr. wrote this book called Where Are the Customers Alphas? And in this book, he was questioning how is it that, you know, when he was seeing a harbor and there were these huge yachts and these yachts belonged to fund managers. And his question was, how come all of these yachts belonged to fund managers and none belonged to clients, right? And 37 years later, Keith Ambachier followed this up with, with a paper that he published in the Journal of Portfolio Management. And he was then asking, where are the customers' alphas? And again, he was questioning the value add from active management because what he found was that most managers had delivered underperformance rather than outperformance. And so going back to the study that I touched on in the introduction, this is the SPIVA study that was done by SNP. So what this study basically shows, I need to, okay, so on the table, it's the percentage of managers that have underperformed their benchmarks. This is the benchmarks and per category. So if you focus on the first two rows, which is the South African equity, we can see the numbers don't look great, right? And this is the headline that was quoted, the three in four managers underperforming. If you look at the global picture, which is the next row, which is this one here, the numbers don't get any better. So this poses a serious problem to the active management industry. And what we're here to try and do today is to try and answer this question of where are the customers' alphas? And so what we're going to do is to be able to try and find a solution. First, we want to try and make sure we can identify the problem and identify the causes of the problem. And to me, the starting point is Let's go back to basics. The generalized law of active management is the foundation of active management. And what this formula basically says is that the alpha you can expect from a manager is a function of four variables. The first one is the IC, and this is basically, it measures the skill or the forecasting ability of the manager. And secondly is this square root of N, and the N is the number of independent active weights the sigma A is the tracking error or active risk, and that basically measures, you know, the deviation that the, bench, the, the manager has taken from the benchmark. And another very important term is this TC, and that's the transfer coefficient. And what that measures is how well has the manager been able to take his skill and transfer it into the portfolio. Now, when I look at this formula, it's, it looks a bit tedious to me, many terms and whatnot. I like to actually try and break these type of things down into something that I can easily comprehend. And we've broken this formula down into these two terms, right? On the left-hand side is the stock picking skill. 
And what you see is that the minute you isolate the stock picking skill, what gets left behind, all of these terms actually form part of the risk management ability of the manager. And so when I think of this in soccer terms, as I said, I'm a huge soccer fan, stock picking, generally you think of it as more like the attacking ability of the team and risk management more like the defensive ability of the team, right? And now when you think of any team that has won a championship, you find that the attack needs to be good and the defense also needs to be good. But equally important, the integration between the two needs to be seamless and very fluid. Now, when I look at this formula, it also shows me that both of these are equally important in the generation of alpha. In my 12 years in this industry, I can say that I've seen more attention being paid to the stock selection ability and less, less, less to risk management. Today, we're here to bring risk management back onto the table, and we're going to show the value add that risk management can actually add for you as a, as a client. So there's four main factors that have been identified in international literature that affect the alpha generation ability of a manager. Firstly, it's dispersion, breadth, market return, and volatility. Of these, dispersion is the most covered, as you can see with the number of papers that we've quoted. I can tell you there's way more papers that have been quoted on, that have been written on dispersion having an effect on the, on the, on the, on the alpha that managers can, can, can generate, right? And to me, I think it's because of the intuition behind it. And what basically dispersion tries to measure, it, it gives you the cross-sectional volatility of returns in a market. And basically what that is, is the variation in returns. And so when cross-sectional volatility is high, that means that the spread in returns is quite wide. And so for a, a, a skilled manager, it's easy to go and pick stocks and differentiate themselves delivering alpha for the client. However, when dispersion is, is low and the spread in returns is quite narrow, it becomes very difficult for any manager to go out and differentiate themselves in such an environment. The second one is breadth. And what breadth basically tries to measure is the diversification of the benchmark that the manager is trying to outperform. And if the definition is that it gives you the effective number of stocks in, in a benchmark, right? And this was introduced in 2000 by Strong in Patch and Shenow. And effectively, the argument with breadth is that highly concentrated benchmarks, they end up limiting the manager's ability to transfer their skill into the portfolio. And the reason for that is basically because what you find is any active risk you take as a manager just gets eaten up by the bigger stocks in the benchmark. Uh, more recently in 2018, Strong in, uh, sorry, Parik and Fabozzi and uh, Parik McQuiston and Z, they also, they came up and said market return and volatility also play a role in, in how much alpha managers are able to generate. And what they found was that in times of high return or bull markets, managers struggle to keep up with benchmarks. But in times of, 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 of bear markets where you have low returns and it's very tough in the markets, what they found is that globally managers have actually been able to come through and deliver alpha for the client in those environments. Uh, so volatility, if you think of volatility as telling us how calm things are in the markets, so in a low volatility environment, it means the market is quite calm. And what they found is that managers typically struggle to deliver alpha in that environment. But when volatility is high and there's turmoil in the markets and conditions are tough, what again they found is that managers 
have come through and delivered alpha for the client in that environment. Now, what we've done is to go out and firstly test these, uh, these factors in the South African market and try to get an understanding of them. And then secondly, try and see, have they actually affected alpha generation in the South African market? So starting with dispersion, so what we've done there on this chart, we're showing the dispersion over time from 2002 to uh, end, of, end of 2018. And the two lines that you see there, the red line is the 33rd percentile and the green line is the 67th percentile. And so if the black line is below the red line, it means dispersion was low. And if it's above the, 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 the green line, it means dispersion was high. And if you remember, I said dispersion measures the number, effectively the number of opportunities in the market, right? And so if, if we look at, uh, say, this period up to here, we can see that, you know, dispersion was coming lower. And then there was this huge jump in 2017. By the way, this is when Steinhoff happened. And we can see that ever since then, dispersion has sort of stayed high, but more recently coming more towards between the two lines. Breadth, and what breadth again measures, it tells us how diversified is the benchmark. So for example, if you think of our, of our, of our market, we've got about 160 stocks, but when I look at this chart, it shows me that basically breadth has been, the number of effective stocks in our market has been between, I'd say, 14 and, say, 25. And this highlights the, the, the concentration problem that we face as investors in the South African market. Now, when we lo also look at the pattern, we see that from about 2016, and this is when SAP happened, when SAP um, was merged with uh, AP InBev, and we can see the problem that has, that has caused in for, for, for concentration of our benchmark because breadth has basically collapsed, and we now find ourselves in an environment where breadth is very low. If we look at return, here we show the rolling 36-month return of the all-share index, and we can see that we had uh, it was high, and then it's been coming lower, and now for almost the past uh, three years, we find ourselves in a low return environment. If we look at, if we look at volatility, same picture, past now almost uh, seven years or so, has been low. And this is a function of the fact that, you know, the, 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 more, the, the, the accommodative policies that have been embraced by global central bankers, which have suppressed volatility globally. And in South Africa, we've been no exception, as we can see here, that now we also find ourselves in a low volatility environment, and we've been in this for quite a while now. And now what we now want to try and see is these factors, have they affected alpha generation in the South African market? So as a starting point, we just show the average alpha for the, average act for the active manager in SA. And this is the chart over time. This is the rolling 36-month alpha. And what we now want to try and dissect is this profile. Can we actually try and pick out the points and see if it's been, if it's been driven by these factors that we've highlighted? And so these are the results after running the analysis. And we've split it into two. The table on the left are the times when the factors were good for alpha generation, and on the right it's when the t are the times when the factors were bad for alpha generation. So the first thing to confirm is that when we look at, if you remember, I talked about a low return environment, for example. This is a bear market, and we see that in bear markets, and when times are hard and times are tough, active managers have come through and delivered the alpha for the client. Secondly, when there's been high dispersion, many opportunities in the market, active managers have gone out 
and embraced those opportunities and delivered alpha for the client. However, as I had alluded to earlier, even in South Africa, we find that in a bull market, active managers typically struggle to keep up with the benchmark. And so when we look at these results, as a starting point, we, 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 we comforted that our findings are quite similar to international literature. And the second point that you will notice, though, is that if you look at the table on the left-hand side, or sorry, if you look at the table on the right-hand side, it's much more densely populated than the one on the left-hand side. And what that says to us is that as an active manager, more often than not, you will find yourself playing defense as opposed to offense. And so your defensive strategy needs to be up to par. Now, what, what uh, Parik and them then did is to say, these don't happen in isolation, these factors. And so to define an environment, what they did is then said, for example, you'll find that you'll have an environment where you've got low return, but high volatility. So what that would mean is that you've got a bear market and there's turmoil in the markets. And so to define uh, those type of environments, let me show you the results here. And again, we've split it into two, the environments that have proven good for alpha generation and those that have proven bad. Starting on the good side, first thing to note, all of these have low return on them, meaning that again, in a low return environment, managers have delivered alpha. And uh, you need typically low return with high volatility or high dispersion or high breadth. And managers have come through and delivered alpha in that environment here in South Africa. But when you look at their occurrence, uh, unfortunately, it's not uh, too often, right? And when you look on the, on the right-hand side, what we found in a high-return environment, which is a bull market, is that it doesn't matter the other environment. No matter what you combine with high return, in a bull market, managers typically struggle to keep up with the benchmark. And the environment that we find ourselves in now is this environment here where you have low return and low breadth. And if you look at what's ha what happens there, there, it's not a good environment for, 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 it's not been conducive for active managers. And again, if you look at the population here, it's much more dense than the one on the right, on the left-hand side. Again, highlighting that active managers, you will find yourself playing defense way more than you will find yourself playing offense. And therefore, your risk management strategy needs to be up to point. And at that, I'm going to hand over to my colleague, Dibojo. And what he will do is he will introduce some techniques that we've tested in the South African market and we also apply in our own, uh, you know, in our own risk management at Limambeu. And we believe that, uh, you know, these, these techniques can help enhance the probability of delivering alpha. Thank you. Thank you, Becky. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. We showed that high concentration and low breath are not good for alpha generation in SA and globally. The big problem that we've got is our benchmarks in SA are highly concentrated. We will now share with you a risk management technique that can be used to address this, this issue. But first, as Alex Ferguson once famously said, attack wins you games, but defense wins you titles. But I'm sure most of you will agree with me that defending against a team of this caliber can be daunting, even for the best of coaches. You need a proper defensive strategy to defend against a team like this. One very successful defensive strategy 
that's often used in soccer is to neutralize and man mark the stars of an opponent's team. In the same way, we will show you that neutralizing the larger stocks in the benchmark to counter the negative effects of benchmark concentration delivers improved probabilities of generating alpha over time. Amongst a number of papers that we went through in trying to find possible solutions to this benchmark concentration issue was a paper by Stronging. This paper was, write, was written around the time when active managers were struggling to outperform their respective benchmarks. So there was a lot of work and a lot of focus that went into reviewing and revising valuation models as well as stock selection models in general. Strongin realized that the problem was misdiagnosed. He found that the underperformance by active managers was not due to the failure of stock, speak, stock picking skill, but it was due to the failure of active managers to deal with the large stocks in the benchmark. After, some do, after doing some thorough analysis, Strongin concluded that it is often a few large stocks in the benchmark that makes it difficult to beat. Now, there are two main reasons why this is the case. Firstly, active management has been found not to work too well on large stocks. And this is due to the fact that these stocks receive a lot of attention and are well covered by analysts, thereby making getting an information advantage on these stocks very, very difficult. I'm not saying that no one or no active manager can get these stocks right. All that I'm highlighting is that it's extremely difficult to get a competitive advantage on these large stocks. Secondly, Strongin found that adding large stocks to a benchmark adds more specific risk to the benchmark than it diversifies away. The big challenge with this is that it creates benchmarks with significant stock-specific risk concentrated on a few large stocks. The unfortunate consequence of this is that the ability to generate alpha ends up being driven by getting a few large stocks right. As an example, many of you would have witnessed that over the last few years, the performance of active managers was usually driven by how well they called a large stock like Nespas, rather than how well they called all the other stocks that are part of the universe. So these big stocks creates massive challenges for active managers. Strongin concluded that if you neutralize the larger stocks in the benchmark, you would be able to improve the consistency of outperformance. Now what we did was we replicated Strongin's study in South Africa. We used the SWIX constituents and stock return data from December 2003 all the way to December 2018 we assumed a highly skilled active manager and we simulated two active strategies. Important to note that in simulating these strategies, we used the same level of skill. Effectively, de-emphasizing the effect of stock selection skill in the comparison of the two approaches. The only difference between the two, the two strategies being the type of constraints that we applied. In the first approach, we applied the long-only constraint 
but we did not apply any constraints to the weights of stocks relative to the benchmark. We call that the concentration naive strategy. In the second approach, we applied the long only constraint, but in addition to that, we neutralized the largest five stocks by weight in the benchmark. Meaning that on the largest five stocks, we held, we held them at benchmark weight, and we call this a concentration aware strategy. We ran the analysis, and the results were pretty impressive. In the first column of the summary table, we've got a number of key portfolio statistics often used to assess the performance of an active portfolio. We've got the average alpha, which measures the performance of a portfolio relative to the benchmark, the tracking error, which measures the variability of the portfolio returns relative to the benchmark, the information ratio, effectively captures the risk-adjusted alpha, measured as the ratio of alpha divided by tracking error. We've got the probability of outperformance, which measures the probability of a portfolio outperforming the benchmark over a three-year rolling period. On column two and three, we've got the results of the concentration-naive and concentration-aware strategies, respectively. Now, looking at the results, we see that the concentration-aware strategy generated a higher alpha of 0.8% per annum relative to 0.5% for the concentration-naive strategy. And it managed to do that at a lower tracking error of 8.6% relative to 11% for the concentration-naive strategy. This higher alpha that the concentration-aware strategy managed to deliver at a significantly lower volatility or lower tracking error translated into a significantly higher risk-adjusted alpha of 0.1 versus 0.05 for the concentration naive strategy. But most importantly, the probability of outperformance increased significantly. And the concentration aware strategy achieved a probability of outperformance of 70% relative to only 59% for the concentration naive strategy. Now, what a summary table like this doesn't show you is the behavior of the strategies over time. It could well be that the success of the concentration-aware strategy was due to one or two brilliant periods. For that reason, we show here the three-year rolling alpha for the two strategies. In green, we've got the three-year alpha for the concentration-aware strategy. In the dark line, we've got the three-year rolling alpha for the concentration-naive strategy. Now, a number of observations from the graph. One, one can see that the two graphs have got periods of outperformance and periods of underperformance relative to the benchmark. In particular, both strategies underperformed the benchmark between 2008 and 2009, and more recently between 2015 and 2016. Interestingly, one can see that during those periods of underperformance, the concentration-aware strategy experienced much lower drawdowns. In periods of outperformance, such as between 2011 and 2012, the performance of the concentration-aware strategy lagged behind. But most importantly, when one looks at the alpha profile of the two strategies, one realizes that the relative risk of the concentration-aware strategy is significantly better. And this talks to the risk management technique that has been applied to that strategy, i.e. neutralizing the largest five stocks.
So we have shown that low breath or high benchmark concentration is not conducive to alpha generation. We have also shared with you some brilliant research from Strongin in which he made a very important finding that when you look at the benchmark, it's often a few last stocks in that benchmark that makes that benchmark hard to beat. We have, using South African data, tested the approach suggested by Strongin, and our finding using South African data is that neutralizing the larger stock, stocks in the benchmark significantly improves the probability of alpha. Now, let me just make a disclaimer. I'm not saying that we, we're not advocating for a complete neutralization of the larger stocks. All that we're saying is that active managers need to be on top of the risk associated with the large stocks in the benchmark. In our investment processes, we meet on a regular basis. We look at the contribution to tracking errors coming from stocks that are part of our portfolio. The one thing that we have realized is that when we look at the, the contribution to tracking error coming from large stocks, we realize that if one doesn't manage that risk properly, one can very easily bend, bend his, his or her fingers. Now, we also mentioned that low dispersion is very detrimental to alpha generation. So in this se next section, I will share with you another risk management technique that can help us address the effect, the negative effect of dispersion on alpha generation. But firstly, coaches would often tell you that it's very easy to defend against a highly dispersed team without a clear structure. But at the same time, they will tell you that it's very difficult to defend against a, a lowly dispersed team with a well-coordinated attacking structure. In the same way as Becky showed earlier, managing against a benchmark in an environment where stocks are highly dispersed is very easy, but it's very difficult to manage against a benchmark in an environment where the stocks are lowly dispersed. So there's a clear need for an approach that can assist us in constructing portfolios that can easily adapt to different dispersion environment. So in searching for that approach, we did a lot of research and we came across a brilliant paper written by Gorman. In that paper, Gorman makes a finding that stock correlations drive dispersion. He actually finds that there's an inverse causal relationship between the two strategies. The implication of this is that to effectively address the negative impact of dispersion on alpha generation, one needs to properly understand the correlation structure of the market and understand how different stocks are related in the market. The most common way of understanding how stocks are related in the market is by using the JSE sectors. This stock classification methodology groups stocks based on their fundamental characteristics. A key feature of this approach is that the groupings are fairly static over time with limited movement of stocks from one sector to another. In another brilliant paper that we found during the research stage, Herwood 
made a recommendation that cluster analysis provides for a better approach in understanding the correlation structure of the market and changes thereof. So we put Strongings findings and recommendations to the test in the South African market. We contrasted the two using the SWIX constituents and stock return data from December 2006 to June 2009. Again, we assumed a highly skilled active manager and we simulated two active strategies. Now, there are two important things to mention in relation to the simulation strategy. One, we assumed the same level of skill between the two strategies, effectively de-emphasizing the effect of skill in comparing the two approaches. Two, we neutralized the sector or cluster weights of the strategies relative to the benchmark. Effectively, what that means is we allowed the strategies to take active positions within the sectors, but not across the sectors. What sector neutralization helps us with is it helps us limit the, co limit the comparison of the two classification approaches to only their ability to adapt to changes in correlation and dispersion. In the first approach, we sector neutralized at a level of financials, industrials, and resources. And the reason for that being that asset allocation decisions are typically taken at that, at that level. For the second approach, we sector neutralized at a level of the three clusters that were generated through the use of K-means clustering. And why three clusters? We just wanted to make the two approaches comparable. And the results were quite impressive. In the first column, we show the same statistics that we showed previously. In the second and the third column, we show the results of the JSE-based sectors methodology and the K-means clustering methodology, respectively. Looking at the results, one can see that there's a higher alpha generated by the K-means clustering methodology at 0.5% per annum relative to 0.3% for the JSE-based sectors methodology. And the K-means clustering managed to achieve this higher alpha at a level of tracking error that's very similar to that of the JSE base sectors at, at 3%. The higher alpha generated by the K-means clustering at a relatively similar tracking error level translated into a significant information ratio of 0.15 relative to only 0.08 for the JSE based sectors um, strategy. And more importantly, there was a significant 7% increase in the probability of outperformance. Next, we show the return profile of the two strategies over time. In green, we show the three-year alpha for the K-means clustering strategy. In black, we show the three-year return for the JSE-based sectors methodology. A few things to mention looking at the return profile. One, the relative risk of the two strategies seem quite similar. None of the two strategies seem to be more volatile than the other. And secondly, looking at the alphas, they seem quite contained in the range of minus 1.5% per annum to 3% per annum. And this is the risk reduction benefits that come with sector neutralizing the strategies. But more importantly, due to its superior ability to adapt to 
different correlation and dispersion environments. The K-means clustering strategy managed to generate better performance over time, most of the times than the JSE-based sectors methodology. As a matter of interest, what we have here is an approach that allows us to compare the two classification methodologies. So simply put, we have plotted here the adjusted, the adjusted rent index. What this index allows us to measure is the similarity or the dissimilarity between two classification systems. This index can assume a maximum level of one, meaning that the two classification systems are perfectly similar. An index value of zero would indicate that the two classification systems are very dissimilar. Now, a few things to mention when looking at the results. One is that the two classification methodologies are generally dissimilar. The maximum attained index value over the test period was only 0.35 out of a maximum possible of one. So this indicates that the two are, are different. Secondly, when one looks at the graph, there's been a significant drop in the index level from 2012 to around about now. This indicates that over time, the two classification systems have become generally dissimilar. Now, there are two factors that have contributed to this dissimilarity between these two classification systems. One is that the K-means clusters allows for the movement of stocks from one cluster to another in reaction to changes in the correlation structure of the market or changes in the dispersion environment. And secondly, the K-means clustering methodology was able to uncover a separate group dominated by Renhead stocks. We have shown you that changes in dispersion affect alpha generation. We have also shared with you brilliant research by Gorman in which he made a finding that correlations generally drive dispersion. The significance of this is that one needs to properly understand the correlation structure of the market in order to address um, the, issue related to, the issues related to dispersion. We have, using South African data, tested the two approaches, the JSC sectors approach and the K-means clustering approach relative to each other, and we have found that the K-means clustering methodology enables us to construct portfolios that can easily adapt to different correlation and dispersion environments. In a nutshell, we have highlighted a number of factors such as return, volatility, breadth, and dispersion that affect alpha generation. Our analysis of these factors show that we're currently in a low return and low breadth environment. And this is an environment that's not very conducive to alpha generation. Right at the beginning, we asked the question, where are the customers alpha? Where are the customers yards? Whilst we do not believe that there's a de definitive answer to this question, we believe that part of the answer lies in the application of robust risk management techniques that can enhance the probability of delivering alpha. We have shared with you two of these strategies. One focuses on neutralizing the largest stocks in the benchmark in order to improve the probability of achieving, achieving better alpha. 
we have also shared with you another strategy, K-means clustering, that enables us to address issues around dispersion. We fundamentally believe that active managers that embrace and integrate these risk management techniques in their own processes, like we do in our own investment processes at Limambe, will have better chances of improving alpha relative to those active managers that don't. With that, thank you, ladies and gentlemen. time almost perfectly <laughs> so uh, we do have some time for questions um, yeah I think we've got a roving mic we've got some questions in the front here do we have a mic no. it's on the way yes. okay. uh, I just want to ask how rigidly you um, apply this in terms of risk management so if you have very strong rules on a large share or on their sector, to what extent do you allow yourselves to overlay the risk process and actually take an active view, or are you quite rigid in the way you applied? Okay, so in our own processes, uh, we rebalance the portfolios um, on a three-monthly basis, and it's mostly aligned to um, the JSC's reviews of the benchmarks that we are measured against. Um, in terms of how we deal with the larger stocks, as I indicated in the presentation, um, we do not necessarily propose that one should neutralize the large stocks relative to the benchmark. All that we're highlighting is that one needs to be wary of the risk associated with the large stocks. A stronging suggested in the paper, we think that in taking views or bets relative to these large stocks, one needs to make sure that you don't deviate too much relative to those stocks. Thank you. In, in the front here. Hello. Ah, there we go. Okay, um, I'm, on, I'm Johan from Old Neutral. Um, I just wanted to check um, how you defined the active strategies that you used in the, I assume it was some kind of back test, um, or was it a simulation using some kind of uh, like a, a real world ESG, um, and then how you controlled for skill to make sure that that was the same. What we did there is we assumed an IC or a stock, a, a, a stock selection skill level of 0 0.15, which is considered pretty high. And then we simulated returns in such a way that we will get the one month ahead returns right, let's say 15% of the time. So that was the first thing. And then on the back of that skill level, we then used optimization to optimize the generated alphas in such a way that we maximize the information ratio of the strategies. So the portfolios were rebalanced, I think, for simulation purposes 
on a monthly basis. So on a monthly basis, we'll generate new alphas and then use optimization to optimize those alphas relative to the tracking error. And then over time, we get monthly returns for the two strategies and the tables that we presented are just a summary of those monthly returns for the strategies. It was from a normal distribution. Thanks. Um, I'm just intrigued, maybe I missed it. Um, in the presentation, did you, did you do any work where you combined both techniques on the same sort of data set, so, or portfolio construction process? So um, remove the concentration risk element and then um, apply the, the clustering, in the, applying both techniques on the same portfolio. So in this work, we didn't. Um, but like I think what, what we wanted to show was more that, uh, you know, if you address the issues directly, there are things that you can do with risk management that can help improve your alpha generation ability. But then, so obviously, in our own processes, we've integrated, uh, you know, both of these ideas into our final portfolios. But what we just wanted to show here is that, look, um, there's these two issues. And we believe that if you address them head on, you can actually improve your probability of delivering alpha. Yeah, I know, but uh, <laughs> yeah. Look, the one thing we could have done, but uh, I mean, we were advised against it, is to yeah show our track record, but it's quite short at the moment. Okay, any additional questions? One at the back there. Hi, thanks very much for your research, uh, Subedra Reddy. So you've identified these factors uh, that influence active manager performance, but surely active management is about performing well in these conditions, um, and skillful active management and good active management is about performing well in all of those conditions. Um, and by removing those conditions, aren't you also getting rid of good active managers? And you're just making sure that you've got the worst or the average active managers left in your set of active management. Yeah, I think that's a very good question. Um, and so the first thing to think about is that uh, to me, is that the first thing is if you look at the at what we showed right um, firstly we're not removing the factors because the way the factors are, are given and so all we're saying is that firstly as an active manager uh, you know you need to be able to know what type of environment works for you and what type of an environment doesn't work for you and now the risk management techniques that co uh, sorry and also the importance of that is because there's no one active manager that will always outperform all the time so if you, if you understand clearly that, okay, this type of environment suits me very well um, and I'm able to demonstrate my skill, what the risk management then does is that when the times are tough and the, the conditions are not that conducive for you as an active manager, you're still able 
to improve your chances of delivering alpha even in that environment. I don't know if that uh, answers your question. Okay, any additional questions? I think maybe while, while um, people are thinking, just a question from my side. Um, I think both in the presentation and if I recall in the paper, you show your results, your modeling results for skilled managers. Did in your research, did you also look at different levels of skill? In other words, did you look at, you know, to, to what extent do you reduce your probability of underperforming if you're an unskilled manager, if you apply these? In other words, you know, does the, does the method, do they, do they actually add value across different skill levels of managers? That uh, would have been an interesting um, angle to look at. <laughs> um, however, looking at what we set out to, to address, we thought that we should just look at one skill level and when testing the two approaches relative to each other, we should just make sure that in each of those strategies we apply the same level of skill. Because remember, the objective was really to contrast the two to see if the implementation of the risk management techniques that we put him forward, if you implement that, whether you'll be able to generate better probabilities of, of generating alpha. We could have done it at any level of skill. I think that from a relative point of view, the results would have remained the same. You would have, maybe if you used a, a, a manager with a medium skill, you would have still found that strategies that have got these risk management techniques do tend to outperform strategies that do not take these risk management techniques into account. Okay, interesting. Yeah, I, um, I always would have thought that the, the outperformance might even be better if there's risk management in, you know, in, a, in a bad manager, if you, if you think about it intuitively, yeah. which I guess from a client perspective, looking at the, you know, the initial slides that Becky showed about the, you know, the, the active managers and the, the degree of outperformance there's been, you know, I think showing that showing that angle as well could be interesting interesting for future for future research. Any other questions, Andrew? It's on it's Andrew Davison. Um, the one thing one concern about the breadth argument or risk management technique is it might be quite tricky for an active manager to sell that. Because if you said to me that's what you're doing, I'd say, well, I'm going to take a passive large cap and I'll give you a small cap mandate as a satellite kind of approach. Or you need to charge me a, a passive fee on the 40% or 50% of the portfolio that is the large caps. So your fees might be quite low. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a valid point. It's a valid point. Um, but again, I'll go back to the point that I mentioned earlier that um, we're not advocating for holding, passi holding passively the larger stocks in the benchmark. We just neutralize these large stocks for testing purposes. In, in practice, I think how one would implement something like this is just to make sure that you've got very good constraints around your larger stocks. Make sure that you don't allow yourself um, 
room to go 10% underweight and NESPAS, for an example. Make sure that you manage that risk very, very tightly because what these results prove is that if things go wrong with these last dogs, your numbers could be all over the place. Yeah, just to add to that, um, you know, in my previous life, when I started my career, uh, you know, I started on the sales side and we used to do a lot of risk management work for asset managers. And the one thing that kept coming up when we had discussions with them was that you'd find a guy who says, I can show you. I had, say, 20 calls this year. I got 18 right, but I'm still underperforming. And when you look, you find that it's because the big stocks whatever you do be very careful because any deviation from benchmark be careful because those stocks generally just eat up all the risk and we're not saying go passive but make sure that once you once you've taken your active risk monitor the risk that those those stocks are taking and make sure that you're happy with that risk because that has a high chance of actually you know explaining your performance uh, out of period Okay, I think we've got time for one more question, so we'll take this one over here. Thanks. Hi, um, it's Andy Lee. Uh, have you guys looked at other asset classes? You've just focused on, on equities here. Yeah? Can you do the same bonds? Uh, yeah, the focus here was on equities. I think it's also, uh, you know, a factor of the availability of data. Um, and yeah, but I mean, I think, yeah, we, we, we can easily do the same study for other asset classes but it would depend on the availability of data. Okay, unless there's, a, there's another pressing question, I think, I think we'll, we'll leave it at that. Sorry, I have one question. <laughs> <laughs> I have a question for the audience. Did you guys find it interesting, though? <laughs> <laughs> we'll, we'll, judge it, we'll judge it by the applause. Okay. Thank you. Thanks, everyone. Thanks for attending.